Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Daniel chapter 8. This is an absolutely fascinating chapter of the Bible. It's a zoomed-in retelling of the vision of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and then the further extrapolation of that in Daniel's dream in chapter 7. This time, however, the focus is only on the middle two kingdoms. That's what I mean by zoomed in. There's no mention of Babylon and no mention of Rome, or for that matter, the eternal kingdom that is established at that time. The focus here is on Medo-Persia and Greece, and in particular on one despotic ruler, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who arises out of the divided Greek empire and who becomes a template and pattern of what we will come to call the Antichrist. Joyce Baldwin, in her commentary, puts it this way. She says, In Daniel 8, we're being introduced to a recurring historical phenomenon. The clever but ruthless world dictator who stops at nothing in order to achieve his ambitions. The book proclaims that such rulers cannot ultimately succeed. Though they talk and act big, and though they cause great suffering to many, their end is sure. Tremper Longman says the same in his commentary. He says, Antiochus becomes an apt symbol for the one Christians know as the Antichrist. So one of the reasons that we have this zoomed-in story in our Bible is so that we can understand the pattern of Antichrist. Within kingdoms and empires, there often arises a particularly crafty and clever and ruthless dictator whose power is legitimately otherworldly and who makes war upon God himself by attacking and harassing the saints. Every once in a while, a demonic despot makes an assault upon the worship and the people of Almighty God. Antiochus Epiphanes is not the Antichrist, though we can speak of him as an Antichrist. His story establishes the pattern and the end for all who follow. In the end, every such ruler is suddenly cut off, thoroughly thrown down, and ultimately and finally destroyed. That's the story, and that's the significance of the chapter that lies open before us today. Let's begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the third year, Of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. So in terms of chronology, you need to understand that the vision of chapter 8 happens a couple of years after the vision of chapter 7, but before the narrative of chapter 5. In it, Daniel is taken to Susa, an ancient city in Elam. It's outside the Babylonian Empire, but it will be inside the empire of the Medes and Persians. Verse 3 says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram 
standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now here, Daniel sees the power and increase of the Medo-Persian Empire. The two horns, one higher than the other, is a perfect symbol for Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was made up of two combining powers, but the Persian side was the greater power and soon eclipsed the Mede side. The Medo-Persian Empire expanded greatly in three directions, west, north, and south. Verse 5 goes on to say, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Now the goat obviously stands for Greece. The conspicuous horn is Alexander the Great. The rapid rise and expansion of Greece was absolutely unprecedented in the ancient world. The speed at which Alexander moved his armies across the earth was absolutely unprecedented in the ancient world. So the goat is a perfect symbol for Greece. In very short order, Alexander defeated and destroyed the empire of Persia, and then at the height of his power, he died at the age of 33. And his empire was carved up into four pieces, represented in this vision by the four conspicuous horns. These four pieces were taken over by his four generals. History calls them the Diadochi. Verse 9 says, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great, towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now, this little horn is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was crafty. He wasn't even supposed to become king in the first place. But by intrigue and guile, he supplanted his nephew and took the throne for himself. He became great and expanded his territory south and east, and he dominated the land of Israel. Verse 10 says that he even made war against the host of heaven, and some of the host he threw down, which clues us into the fact that this military and political narrative has deep spiritual undertones. Beneath the visible rise of Antiochus, we need to see the spiritual movements and machinations that lie beneath. Antiochus is a demonic despot. He's the tip of the iceberg. He is what we see, but there's a lot going on that we don't see. That's what he's saying. That's what the vision is saying. And in the spiritual realm, he is winning victories, even over the host of heaven. Verse 11 says, 
it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Now, we're not sure who this is. Who's the prince of the host? Is it, is it Michael, the archangel? Is it Gabriel, the hero of God? Is it someone else? We don't know. We just know that the spiritual battle is very intense. It's a pitched battle. And at first, the outcome appears in doubt. Verse 11 goes on to say, And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. That is, it was taken away from the prince of the host. So whoever this is, he actually loses control, as it were, of the daily worship in Jerusalem. Antiochus and his forces, his demonic forces, actually managed to put an end to the worship of God in Jerusalem. Now, we know about this from history. Antiochus wanted to Hellenize, he wanted to make Greek the Jewish people, and he ordered the cessation of temple sacrifice in 167 BC, and he profaned the temple by introducing a sacred object, which appears to have been some kind of meteor, and he sacrificed a pig to it on the holy altar. This is the event that the Jews refer to as the abomination of desolation. Verse 11 goes on to say, And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. All right, let me summarize. A cosmic conflict is undertaken by this demonic despot, this little horn, named Antiochus. His forces appear to have the upper hand. They they actually cause the worship of God in Jerusalem to stop. They commit a great act of blasphemy, and they cause truth to be thrown to the ground. This refers to something else we know from history. Antiochus had his soldiers go around and confiscate, burn, and destroy any copies of the Torah that they could find. This is truth being thrown to the ground. You can read about all these stories in the book of Maccabees. Verse 13 goes on to say, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So in the vision, the angel says to the voice, which we assume to be God, how long will this go on? How long will you let the forces of this demonic despot have the upper hand? And God says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, many many commentators understand that as meaning 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices, the sacrifices that were disrupted, meaning 1,150 days or roughly three and a half years, the same number we ran into in Daniel 7. The number seems to mean a reasonably short and limited time. Verse 15 says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood When he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So God sends Gabriel to interpret the vision. 
He says that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, scholars go back and forth here on this one. Does, does that mean for the end of all time, as in the great tribulation and the return of Christ? Or does it mean for the end of this particular matter? Now, I tend to think it means both. We've already talked about how this event and this character are being introduced to us here in chapter 8 in order to establish a pattern that will be repeated and that will ultimately be fulfilled in the person that we call the Antichrist. So I think it's both. I, th I think this, this vision refers to the end of this particular matter and the end of all matters. It is about this immediate tribulation and the great tribulation. The one becomes our lens for anticipating and interpreting the other. Verse 18 says, And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own Power. Now, let me just jump in there. Make sure you, uh, that you, you heard that and understand it. The text says, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. Out of the fractured remains of the Greek empire shall arise a demonic despot. Verse 24 goes on to say, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So, this horn, this demonic despot. He will arise. He will prosper. He will harass and persecute the saints. He will appear to have the upper hand. And then suddenly he shall be broken by no human hand. All of the sudden, God will take the field and the battle shall come to a sudden end. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. You see, in, in Daniel's day, the temple and Jerusalem still lay in ruins. It hadn't yet been rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and that group. That was, that was many days still in the future. These visions about Jerusalem and the, and the temple being under the boot of a demonic despot had no immediate application to the people of Daniel's day. They were to be stored and kept until they were needed. Verse 27 says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel was overwhelmed. He had seen many things he did not fully understand, but this he knew. Evil was on the move. 
But God was on his throne. No matter what happened, no matter what hardships lay ahead, God is large and in charge. He will not let his people be overwhelmed. He will not let evil triumph. He will take the field in a time of his own choosing. He will cast down the wicked and he will lift up his people and he and they will reign. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.